We have just released issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the science of remote viewing. My guest is Dr. Courtney Brown. He is a professor of political science at Emory University, specializing in nonlinear mathematics. But his work in remote viewing is done separately from his academic work. It's done through the organization he founded some three decades ago called the Farsight Institute. Courtney is the author of three books about remote viewing, Cosmic Voyage, Cosmic Explorers, and Remote Viewing, the Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception. Welcome, Courtney. It's great to be here. Thank you, Jeff. And once again, thank you for making the journey to Albuquerque. It was great to come. It most appreciated. I'm delighted to have you here. We've already done two previous interviews. I will link to them now for viewers who may not be aware of it. These interviews are about uh, your life story and about the work, fascinating, innovative work you've been doing on creating videos of UFOs. But in a sense, Remote viewing has been the theme that has sort of uh, been woven through all of your work for the last 30 years. As we mentioned in one of the other interviews, it's, uh, I was tremendously influenced by Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, where there was this guy, Harry Seldon, who was a mathematician, but he also focused on psychic stuff at the same time, so combination. And with that, he produced a science of psychohistory. And I was fascinated with that idea. So as an academic, I became uh, a nonlinear mathematician that works in a social science program, which is exactly what Harry Seldon was in the foundation. He was a mathematical social scientist. And um, But then outside of that, I became interested in the psychic side of his psychohistory. It was interesting that that book came to me at a certain point in my time, a certain point in my life, and that when I read it, it clicked. So I don't know if that was accidental or if that was somebody dropping something into my head to remind me of what I was supposed to do, but that was a a big deal. And then I uh, I began on that, that road of uh, what you might call mental powers. <laughs> well, it's intriguing to me that Isaac... Asimov, the author of the Foundation Trilogy, like Arthur C. Clarke, two great science fiction writers, wrote very eloquently in their novels about psychic abilities. And yet, uh, I think they were both skeptical and, and would probably, if they were alive today, would even be hostile to the idea of remote viewing. I personally think that people like Asimov got those ideas for the novels dropped into their head when they were sleeping. I personally think that 
Uh, this is just, and I don't know, but I personally think that the whole psychohistory, galactic evolution type of thing, and the galaxy going through a huge war and then collapsing, it so closely matches what we've discovered with remote viewing actually happened in real life. I think those those ideas sort of were were given to him in the middle of the night when he was sleeping, and so he may not consciously agree with a whole bunch of stuff. Similarly, with the Star Wars stories of George Lucas, we actually did a project, a remote viewing project, on the origin of the Star Wars, the envisioning of it. And it turns out that George Lucas, from our perspective, was not somebody who just invented some of that stuff. He he remembered that stuff. He had lives previous where he was... Um, well, he was involved in the galactic drama of conflicts within the galaxy, and that's where the Star Wars things came out. Now, he probably thinks that he thought of everything all by himself, but, you know, in, in our view, a lot of things that sort of capture our attention and drive us forward are actually things that started before we were who we are today. Uh, like a long time before, like thousands of years before. And there are things that we are still working through. And that's why I think Asimov came up with the Foundation Trilogy to describe a story that so closely parallels what actually did happen in the galaxy. And the merger of psychic stuff with mathematics to me, it's the, the probability of that being real and thought up by one person is very remote. Let me give you another example. This is probably a better example. Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton came up with all of classical physics. He came up with the calculus. Those are huge things yeah. all of physics classical physics and all of calculus jeff it is impossible for somebody to figure that all out in one lifetime I and mean, he did it in a few years of one lifetime i'm sorry it's just not possible it's not even slightly credible it takes thousands of years to come up with all that stuff slowly well newton said he stood on the shoulder of giants what I think he did was he remembered it. Mm -hmm. He already knew it from whatever he was before he was Isaac Newton, somewhere else in the galaxy, and he remembered it. I think that's where all or a great deal of invention actually comes from. In fact, the the architecture that we see today with skyscrapers and things like that, that's the type of architecture we see in other places of the galaxy. It's something new. At a time when the Earth was being run as a most oppressive system of a prison, was back in the ancient Egyptian days, where people were running around in loincloths and they were building pyramids. And if you think about pyramids, they are totally useless. I know people like to say, oh no, they were conveyor of energy around. The reality is they're incredibly difficult to build with huge blocks of rock and they serve no shelter purpose whatsoever. You don't cook a hamburger or a vegetarian burger. Uh, you don't do anything in them. You don't shelter or anything. 
They haven't even found tombs. Yeah, and and they, the amount of investment to build them with no practical purpose, the reason we found for the creation of the pyramids was that a prison force was actually being mentally controlled and they wanted to not remind the people of where they came from. And it's only be, and, and as a result, they said, well, we'll create this sort of vision of these pyramids, these useless pyramids, as a means of distracting people in their own mind from remembering what things were. And then when the prison system started to break down, it's not completely gone, but as it started to break down in its most oppressive form, you started to have people remember what buildings used to be like. And uh, you also started to remember what technology used to be like. And, and things started to happen. So you get architecture now that looks like places elsewhere in the galaxy. Well, Courtney, I, I don't want to disagree with anything you've said so far. But with regard to scientific remote viewing, as I came to understand it, coming of age in California in the 1970s and uh, working with Hal Putoff and uh, Russell Targ at SRI. Uh, not that I worked with them, I didn't, but I was a, a visitor to SRI in uh, 1976 when I did my first remote viewing experience. Uh, the first principle, uh, as I understand it, is you need to have feedback. You need to be able to validate whatever uh, imagery comes up in the process of remote viewing uh, and compare it with a physical target. And the, the various examples you've given about the uh, ancient history of the galaxy and uh, visions that come to people while they're sleeping are not the sorts of things that can be uh, validated that way. Actually, it's not that it's not actually correct. All of our remote viewing projects have something verifiable in them. Mm -hmm. All remote viewing is based on getting remote perceptions of something across time and space and reporting it back. But if that's all you're doing, then you're not doing a remote viewing project to learn new things. You're doing a proof of psi project. Right. So proof of psi science is simply trying to prove that psychic capabilities or psi capabilities are possible. Mm -hmm. And there you have a physical target, you're doing a description under blind conditions, and then you're describing that physical target, and then that description gets evaluated by judges of some tort. Mm -hmm. That's proof of psi functioning. But if you go beyond proof of psi functioning to using it for something practical, then you have to have targets that describe things that you don't know. Now, in order for us to know that the information is even remotely accurate so that we can use it, we have to have something verifiable in the target. For example, when we did the great, the, the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza, that was a particularly difficult target because it was so complicated to find out how they things were actually created, how they were actually built, all of which would have been totally disbelievable, un unbelievable. No one would have believed a thing about how those pyramids were actually built if the remote viewers were not also clearly drawing the pyramids. So the pyramids were verifiable. They exist. We see them now. And the remote viewers working under totally blind conditions had to recreate exactly what those pyramids look like, actually multiple pyramids. And 
when they described the construction of the pyramids, they had to describe the construction of those pyramids. And those pyramids had photos and things like that that we were, that, that we were able to compare. And the, the pictures of the pyramids and the sketches of the remote viewers were totally unambiguous. This wasn't downtown Seattle. This was a desert environment with just triangular structures just like that and people working to build them. And it was because of that confirmation of the verifiable component that we were able to believe the unverifiable component, which is the construction method for making those. Similarly, when you have a, a remote viewing target of, say, Xi Jinping, the president of China, or uh, George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, uh, those are actual physical people. And somewhere in the process of the remote viewing, you have to have them described, those people. And you have to describe what they're thinking. And so you have to have something verifiable in those aspects. When we did a project on Iapetus, the spot on the side of Iapetus, the, 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 the moon of Saturn, they had to describe the Iapetus moon as a rocky, hard, big rock nearby a big planet that has rings around it. <laughs> and all under blind conditions. So when we talk about the formation of that big spot on the side of Iapetus, it's in the context of a lot of stuff around which there's verifiable information. So that's, that's the sort of complexity in the remote viewing process. If you're just looking for proof of site functioning, you're just verifying what everyone already knows. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to use it for practical purposes, then you're doing that, you're describing some verifiable element, but you're also adding something to it which is not verifiable, which we only believe because the verifiable part was done accurately. Well, the principle, therefore, is, is that the parts that you can verify give you confidence in, in the parts that you can't verify. That's exactly correct. Is there any way to test the validity of that principle? I, I know, for example, in the field of financial forecasting, there are all these warnings that say past results do not guarantee future success, that you can have a, a system for financial forecasting that works, worked extremely well in the past. We don't know that it'll work at all in the future. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, in fact, we do financial forecasting as well. And we have a disclaimer on all of our financial forecasting that these are experiments in remote viewing and that, uh, um, you know, everyone doing investment is doing that at their own risks and that this is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Mm -hmm. But we do the forecast and we show the people the results. With that, we have taken the principle of having something verifiable and then something unverifiable, unverifiable to, to a new level because we have what we call a base target. A base target is an actual picture of a place. Mm -hmm. And that picture of a place has to be recreated by the remote viewer. They have to actually draw that place. But in addition to that place, they add other things. Great. And the other things tell us how much movement there has been in the, whatever financial thing we're looking at. And what we actually do with those, with, with that sort of combination is in the, the whole theory of the whole thing is to create the target at the end of the forecast period. Mm -hmm. So if we have a five-year forecast with this type of thing going on, 
what we're essentially doing is saying we are creating the target in our mind based on how the actual economic thing worked out. Now, we have experimented with creating it with CGI software, so it helps with the creation in our mind of what the target actually looks like. So it's that it's the, the target doesn't have to be a physical target. It can be a mental target as long as it's created in the mind. So we're creating something that won't exist until the future. Right. You're remote viewing the future by remote viewing this future creation of a target that at the current time doesn't exist. But we know part of it. The important thing is to have a mental picture of the final target. Mm-hmm. And CGI software helps in the creation of that mental picture. But it's the mental picture that really matters. And the base target is a verifiable component that tells us if we can believe the rest of it. If I understand correctly, this is a protocol that's very unique to your organization. Yeah, no one else uses it. Most other people, when they do financial stuff, use... ARV. Yeah, associative remote viewing. And what that basic... And that was... um, well, I won't mention the original scholars that did that I don't, because we don't use that yeah. and we don't like it. Mm-hmm. We, it's very inaccurate. The accuracy rate is about 60% at best. Mm-hmm. And the basic idea is that you have two targets. It's a corrupt experimental design. It's a faulty, corrupt experimental design. Very popular. but <laughs> It's extremely popular, but it's also... It's not. It's it's theoretically f- faulty yeah. because the people doing it don't understand the actual process of remote viewing why it works. Mm-hmm. But typically, what they do is they have two targets. Good. If the football game is going to be won by one team, then the target is this one A. If the football team for the other side is going to win, then the target is B. Right. Everyone now and and then they tell the re, the the people who are doing remote viewing. Remote view the correct target, and they won't know what the target is until... And, and of course, they're not told either target before the sessions. Right. Then, they, then they remote view uh, a target, and if it looks like target A, then they say that team won. And if they say target B, then that team won, and they go out and they bet money on right. which team, or which horse, or which stock in the stock market. They, but they don't understand why remote viewing works in the first place. Remote viewing works because there's a telepathic connection between the analyst, the person who's actually uh, using the data, because you're, you're doing the remote viewing for the purpose of satisfying the informational needs of the analyst. Then the analyst is looking at the actual remote viewing data and trying to figure out which target is correct. Mm-hmm. What's in the mind of the analyst is creating the target. So if you have two targets in your mind, then both targets are fair game. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a little bit of an emphasis in the mental stuff on the correct target because you think a little bit more about that target. So there tends to be a slight benefit to the correct target. That's why you get a 60% correct accuracy rate. But they don't understand why, you know, what's created. The the theory uh, that I've often discussed and heard from people is that the the target is actually the image that will be presented to you in the future so that the viewer is reading their own mind uh, at some future point in time. You'd have to especially configure the experiment to make that work. The reality is the target is who's ever looking at the viewer at the at the session and the data and the actual target at the yeah. same time. That's what creates the target. Now if the viewer is the person who's looking at the actual picture 
and comparing that to the session, then the viewer is creating the target in their own mind. This is really the most important part of my book, my science book, Remote Viewing, the Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception. That was the reason for that book, to describe this process. This whole discovery was a result of an experimental design that has been used extensively in the psych community going back decades. And it's a totally faulty design, but it's the one, it's to pick a correct target out of five. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they have five targets on a shelf or something like that. They have a banana and they have a piece of paper, a pen, or they, you know, they have various things that, that are targets. They need to be distinct. Yeah, distinct. This distinct, very clear, different types of mm-hmm. things. And then the remote viewers are told to remote view the correct target. Now, the target is chosen by a computer or some type of random device. And that, that device is the thing that's deciding what the actual target is. Now, the analysts take the remote viewing sessions and look at all the targets and try to decide what the se- what targets are being described by the remote viewing sessions. And they had something that, w- that was later called by uh, Hal Potoff and Russell Targ as the displaced target. Yes. So they have a really good description from the remote viewing, but of the wrong target, not of the one that was chosen by the, ca- by the computer. The big bugaboo of remote viewers. Exactly that. And this has caused a tremendous controversy in the psych community, in the scientific psych community, uh, about the use of random computerized things like that. They didn't understand that when the, the analysts were looking at all five targets, all five possible targets, all five targets became game. Became for them. a psychic cloud over the That's exactly right. And the remote viewers could, re- could remote view any one of the five yeah. and be correct. Yeah. And they also didn't understand the issue of multiple timelines, where there are different futures where the different targets were actually the right targets. And the computer actually had no impact at all. Now, this is really important. There are two major groups that have studied psi functioning. They have the Parapsychological Association and they have the the Society for Scientific Exploration. And they were interesting people, often collaborating, talking. And there became a time when they had a dispute. (laughs) And there was a part, there was an article that was written by Jessica Utz and her co and her co-authors, that were that was really criticizing this the the work that was that was done uh, at, at Princeton um, by uh, gosh I'm just slipping their names Brenda Dunn and Robert John exactly Robert John and Brenda Dunn where they were using human taskers mm-hmm. and they you know Jessica Utz and her colleagues raked Robert John and Brenda Dunn and their colleagues. Over the coals, I've rarely seen a more, you know, ferociously uh, done attack on those people. And what they were saying is that that by the fact that they were using human tax taskers, they were contaminating the experimental design, and there could be leaks. And they had to do it with a randomized process that was like a computer drawing, the, doing the target and stuff like that. The problem was that. Jessica Utz and her colleagues, they didn't understand what caused a target to be a target either. And Robert Dunn and, and, and Brenda Dunn and, her, and their colleagues, they didn't understand that either. But because of the dispute, it sort of caused a fracture in the psych community, 
and the two sides, the Parapsychological Association and the Society for Scientific Exploration, they sort of drifted apart with bad feelings. Mm -hmm. And in my view, had Robert John and Brenda Dunn con continued along the lines that they were going, they would have eventually figured out that it was the ideas of the analysts that were actually creating the target. They were thinking about, they were working with human beings. And Jessica Utz and her colleagues, they just never, they never tested the fact that the computer was the actual designer, chooser of the target. They, they were saying the computer has to do the, the choosing. It has to be without a human. So there had to be some way of having a completely random process, but either by computer or some other random process. But they never actually tested if that was actually happening. So they made the classic mistake of thinking that remote viewing is confined to any of the classical laws of separation, so that you can separate something in time and space and actually have and have some, uh, some type of control over the experiment as if a machine could substitute for that. They didn't accept the idea or think of the idea that it was the human thinking process that was controlling everything in the entire in the entire thing. So my book, um, uh, and I, and I'm not criticizing uh, Jessica Utz and her colleagues or uh, Robert John and Brenda Dunn and their colleagues. They were both doing interesting things, but they argued too soon. It was not the time to ferociously argue about the Bible, about the, the, the gospel of the proper way to conduct the scientific experiment, because nobody at that time understood anything about the actual process that was that was allowing the the, that was allowing the remote viewing perceptual process to occur in the first place. And they both needed to be, they both needed to chill out, to calm down, and they both needed to do some more basic experiments just to try to figure out what's actually causing this process to work they both knew it worked but there was it was it was way too early for dogma and i i personally think that i just and i have no way to prove this i the way i was looking at robert john and brenda dunn's experiments the way they were talking about how they were thinking about things they were all working with people and ideas and thoughts i had the thought that they probably were going to figure it out but they never got the chance to do that because as soon as they were attacked they went into um, randomized processes to choose a target. And <laughs> that was well, I'm under the impression that any remote viewing experiment can be viewed as a system. And the system includes the percipients, it includes the evaluators, the judges, it also includes the people who read about the experiment, could be years in the future, and maybe the family members of all the participants and anybody who is even distantly aware of remote viewing in general, including people who are hardcore skeptics, all are part of a, a, a psychic framework that contains that experiment and influences it. We did an experiment at Farsight that we ended up calling uh, I, I always called it the multiple universes experiment, but we had to rename it. And that experiment was actually published in the Journal for Scientific Exploration. It's the only article in in the uh, in the Journal of Scientific Exploration where remote viewers did a real thing, where they actually went after and you had real remote viewers describing real things uh, for a purpose. And they and the basic results of that and and 
When I say the only experiment like that, these are fully trained remote viewers, uh, trained in the CRV, and actually at that point it was the CRV and the HRV gene methods. Now we need to define these for our CRV viewers. is controlled remote viewing that was basically invented by Ingo Swann, and the, sort of the biggest person that is known for the controlled remote viewing name now is, is Lynn Buchanan. Yeah. So it was his people and the Hawaiian Remote Viewers Guild, that was a different group of people that was led by someone who came out of Special Forces Intelligence called Glenn Wheaton. And so it was his people and the CRV people that combined to do that experiment. And that experiment was really interesting. It directly relates to your example that you just raised. This is the experimental design. The remote, there was three months, and we repeated this three months design for a year. Let's start with January to make it simple. Okay. On January, the remote viewers do a remote viewing session to describe an event that will occur in February. All of the sessions get encrypted with 256-bit encryption software put up on the web, and distributed around the world. Then we wait for February to complete. The target comes out of February. The taskers, who were at that point, Lynn Buchanan and, and Glenn Wheaton, had never seen the sessions. And they, in March, um, picked the target. Now, they didn't do it the same time. They would alternate. So one month, Lynn Buchanan would pick the target, and then the next experiment, Glenn Wheaton would pick the target. They'd alternate. But the basic idea is that the tasker would pick the target in month three, that would be March, from an event that happened in February. Now, the sessions were done in January, encrypted, put on the web, downloaded everywhere. February, something happens. In March, say, Lynn Buchanan, looks at everything that happened in February and says, what would be an interesting target? Something that happened in the news is verifiable. And so he picks something that happens in, in, Mar in, in February. But he does that in March. He does something. He picks something that happened in February. Some event. Some, some public event that's a major thing okay. that people can, can verify. All right. Something that appears in the newspaper yeah. and things like that. Mm -hmm. But he picks that target that happens in February. He picks it in March. Right. Now, the event is in the past of the tasker, which is Lynn Buchanan, say. But it's in the future of the remote viewers who do the session. Mm -hmm. You get it? Yeah. So it's in, the, it's in the future of the remote viewers. It's a very clever design. Yeah, but it's in the past of the, uh, of the tasker. They hit it every time. Every single time, what we were trying to do is, in a concept where we have multiple realities, multiple timelines, is it possible, because we always knew that we could pick a target in the past and get it right all the time, but picking the future is, was, di was dicey. It was hard to remote view the future. Yeah. So we said, maybe one of the problems is that there's multiple futures. That means there's multiple pasts, but there's some way to pick a, a single timeline in the past, mm -hmm. meaning the tasker knows something from his or her past, uh, some event, the, the Napoleon at Waterloo. That's an event that happened in that person's past or in the history of that person. He knows that. So that becomes, a ta that becomes the, the target. But with regard to the future, it hasn't happened yet, so the tasker doesn't know it. So it can be anything in an infinity of possible timelines. Mm -hmm. But if you have the tasker in the future, then it's in the tasker's 
past, yeah. and he can pick a single target that the remote viewers pick, uh, that remote viewers perceive in the future. So, the, so each transcript would then have to be graded against that target somehow. Well, it's better than that. We had then posted the passwords to de-encrypt the sessions, and then everybody in the world can compare the sessions, the, re the authentic sessions, with the actual targets. And we did grade, evaluate each session, and according to a certain scale, it was a complicated thing that we had to do, and we had to evaluate each and come up with summary tables for it. But the result was it was a knockout, meaning, and it, it appeared in the, in the Journal for Scientific Exploration, a link to that article, can be found in the, on the homepage of our website, farsight.org. We, we can link it in the description of this video for viewers who might be interested. It's a modification of a design that was, dis that was done back at SRI, at, Scientific, uh, at Stanford Research Institute, where they used a, an outbounder. Mm -hmm. And an outbounder is where you have a person that goes to some distant location, and then the remote viewer who doesn't know anything about where that outbounder went is describing what that outbounder is seeing, whether they're at a, at a harbor and they're looking at boats or they're out on the desert or on a mountain or in the middle of a city. You know, the, the, the person is supposed to be remote viewing what that outbounder is seeing. So this was the same type of design, but it was a temporal outbounder, a temporal outbounder, an outbounder in time. Mm -hmm. So Lynn Buchanan, for example, was the outbounder he was two months in the future, <laughs> and he was picking the target. So that's that's what picking a, a past target for him it was past, but yeah. for the viewers it was future. Uh, undoubtedly, it was a salient event, something that was in the news, and uh, we know that uh, Roger Nelson, who came out of the Princeton group, uh, developed the. Um, Global Consciousness Project yes. uh, using random event generators, he called them eggs, scattered all over the world. We have an interview with Roger on this channel I can link to for people who are curious. And uh, what he found is that salient events seem to uh, create perturbances in, in the, I would call it the uh, quantum foam underlying all of reality, the uh, statistical randomness expressed in Schrodinger's equations for quantum physics seem, seem to be sensitive to these events. I know, Roger, and it's a brilliant, it was a brilliant design, and he had these machines that are designed to pick up these random, these random things uh, sort of on the atomic level. And he had them scattered all over the world and connected with computers so that you can collect all of these yeah. data. But it matches the basic theoretical stuff that I just described with remote viewing, which is it's the thoughts that matter. And if you have salient events, then millions and possibly billions of people focus their thoughts on those events. Yeah. And when that happens, then something in the, in the, 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 the quantum fabric of our existence takes shape in some way. And that's also uh, relatable to the basic two-slit experiment. The basic idea is that something doesn't manifest in this reality unless it's observed mm -hmm. in some way. Now, Einstein used to joke about this with his quantum mechanical colleagues by saying, 
do you really think the moon wouldn't be there if we didn't look at it? <laughs> so, but there's many ways to register an event. It doesn't mean you physically have to look at it. It can be uh, registered in a zillion different ways, uh, machine ways, uh, indirectly with other people. But when you have 8 billion or 7 billion or 6 billion people on the planet uh, knowing that the moon is there, you know, the registering of the moon <laughs> is, is, is a permanent thing. But nonetheless, it, it was a, a hard nut to crack. It was hard to figure out that it was what was in people's minds that was creating the manifestation of that event. And so when he said, you know, do you think you're actually arguing that the moon wouldn't exist? But the reality is on the quantum mechanical level, the particle doesn't exist. And this is not in dispute. The particle in, uh, doesn't exist unless it's in some way, shape, or form registered in some way. Right. So what matters is thought is a way of pulling something out of existence from the probabilistic realm into the realm that we see. Well, Courtney, we're getting at a very interesting debate here. Earlier, we talked about the many worlds theory in quantum mechanics. And my understanding is that physicists today, we pointed out, for example, roughly 25% of physicists subscribe to the many worlds theory, which suggests that uh, the quantum foam, the quantum uh, equations don't really collapse into a single observation at all, that every possibility exists in some other universe. And, and my understanding is that the reason physicists gravitate towards that interpretation, as metaphysical as it is, because it means that there are hundreds of billions of new universes created every moment, and we don't know where they are, uh, that's a theory that physicists gravitate towards because they don't like the idea that consciousness is involved in the collapse of the wave function. I've spoken to physicists and they've explained that, that have explained the problem that they have wrapping their head around the whole thing. And that is, if there are multiple realities, how could it possibly be? Because they'd bump into each other. Yes. You'd have one Earth occupying the same space as another Earth. And if you have an infinite number of Earths, like, where are they going to fit? Yeah. So that's a real problem to wrap your head around, except you're then accepting the idea that there is a, a real aspect about physical matter. So if you accept that there's a real aspect about physical matter and that physical matter is unique and solid, like this chair, solid, right. then you run into that problem. How can more physical matter... Which is common sense. Which, that's, that's, the, that's the seductive problem. But Hugh Everett, with the Many Worlds Interpretation, he was the one who created the Many Worlds Interpretation with his dissertation, which he published in 1957. He worked under John Wheeler. That was a real hard thing for people to accept in that day because they had already accepted the Copenhagen interpretation, which matched their version of their vision of reality, which is that they all agreed that there's these probabilities of these many events because of the quantum mechanical experiments that they had been doing, two-slit experiment, plus some other delayed choice experiment, a lot of experiments they were doing. It was not in dispute that the thought process observing something, in some way registering it, caused something to manifest on the quantum mechanical level. but. They couldn't understand, because they accepted that it, once it existed, it was a solid thing, they couldn't understand how you could have more than one different, different solid thing happen at the same time. The, the, the basic problem is 
that they take the reality of the illusion of physical matter as real. But, Jeffrey, you cannot tell me you've ever found a physicist who has ever actually found something solid. If you look at anything, this body, the shoes, the chair, anything, what you find is empty space and molecules. Mm -hmm. Inside the molecules, you'll find empty space and atoms. Inside the atoms, you'll find empty space and subatomic particles. And down the rabbit hole it goes. They've never found anything that's solid, solid. It's always empty space and something else. And so what actually we have is a universe of energy, a universe of waves, a universe of frequencies. And when Einstein said energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, speed of light squared, that's a constant. So you're basically saying mass and energy are equal with a constant scaling factor. So what that basically means is that all mass actually is energy, and that's why the atomic bombs actually work in terms of converting and so on. But the the basic idea that if all things really are energy, then what causes this physical matter to look like physical matter? And that's the exact same problem that the quantum mechanical people said when they said, what causes that particle to manifest and to show up on that particle detector? Mm-hmm. What causes that? It's the same thing is happening here. And the early physicists were not willing to accept a generalization of quantum mechanics. So they have a line called the line of decoherence. And on one side, it's like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens on the quantum level stays on the quantum level and has its own rules. And what happens on the macro level stays in the macro level and it has own rules. So you have quantum mechanical laws and they have classical laws of physics with the macro side. And whoever it was the one who said... That's a monstrosity. That's crazy. You can't just say there's a line and you have a bunch of laws on one side and a bunch of laws on another. But they did that. And they said, we just don't ask any questions. These are the two sets of laws we deal with. But the generalization of quantum mechanics allows for that. And that basically says everything we see is is manufactured as frequency manifestations. And that the best analogy you can make is radio or actually television. When you have a television and you're looking at your favorite movie, it's coming across at a certain frequency. Or a radio dial, you're dialing into a certain frequency and you're listening to something. But whether you're seeing a picture or actually listening to audio, it's the same basic principle. But there are other channels where other things are going on and they're not all blending in. They're not all mixing. You're selecting a frequency. Now, it's only a matter of time. I don't think very long. But there's only a matter of time between those when those those images that you see on TV are going to become 3D reality. Right. And they're starting to do that with these headsets that they come out. Uh, the Oculus and so Yeah, on. stuff yeah. like that. Meta is all oriented around right. that type of stuff. These They're called they're virtual reality yes. type things. And the basic thing is those are moving in the direction of being completely realistic. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so you'd actually say this is as real as a physical body. And when... It's already very close. It's very close. But time's actually getting to the point where they're going to be able to make holograms that you don't have to have these headsets for that you'll be able to see in front of you. So at that point, you're going to be able to create a holographic reality that is as realistic as anything that you see right here, and you won't be able to tell the difference. So that's basically what we're living in. We're living in an energy fluid that allows itself to congeal into things. So that basically means 
reality is a result of our thoughts. And that you can't think of anything, because when you're observing something, like me looking at you, you looking at me in this chair and so on, we're thinking about that. So you can't think of anything that doesn't in some way, shape, or form actually exist. It doesn't have to be something that's in front of you that you're thinking of. You can say, well, it's just my thoughts. In some way, shape, or form, those thoughts are real. In some way, shape, or form, in the radio dial. (laughs) In other words, every every fictional book that's ever been published uh, is uh, real in, in some other dimension. In some other shape or form or way, exactly correct. There's no such thing as pure fiction, in other words. If you can think of it in some way, shape, or form, it exists. That's why when you're doing remote viewing sessions, you can actually target something that's imaginary that someone thinks about and actually get results that describe exactly that. Yeah, that being the case, then how can you ever be wrong? Every remote viewing would be correct at some level. That's an interesting problem. Uh, in 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 scientific experiments where you have to verify things, you have to have some control over the thoughts of the people who are analyzing the data, or you can get anything at all. So, for example, at Farsight, we do two things that are pretty different than what other people do. Before we meditate, uh, we, I mean, before we do any sessions, all of our remote viewers are told to meditate. And they meditate for a long time. And that already is unusual. It is unusual, but they calm their minds so that everything is settled, mm-hmm. so that their own thoughts aren't intervening yeah. and going to various realities or whatever. No, it makes a lot of sense in, in theory, but it's not... You know, usually the, the sometimes it's called the cool down period. Yes, yeah. you know, five minutes or something. Yeah, I think I think Joe McMonagle used to call it the cool down. I know at the Monroe Institute they used to talk about it as the cool down, and that was a very useful term, the cool down. But we actually formally call it meditation, and we teach all of our remote viewers how to do meditation, a mantra-based meditation. And they do that, and it's serious. They have to, they have, they do not touch a session before doing that. Mm -hmm. When we analyze our sessions, we also clear our minds. So, for example, I'm often an analyst uh, evaluating the sessions that are coming in. Aziz has to do all the financial stuff. So he, he analyzes the financial stuff. He meditates before he looks at any, if if you're making a financial uh, forecast, You can't have all types of thoughts in your mind that are, you can't look at a whole bunch of targets and have those on your mind and then look at a financial forecast because the thoughts that are on your mind are creating the target. So the person's going to actually, the viewer is going to actually pick up what's ever in your mind. So he meditates before analyzing the Mm -hmm. sessions. When his mind is calm and empty, he opens up the base target that has the, 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 the essential elements that have to be in the description and then he looks at the session. And he sees that stuff, producing a very clear signal for the remote viewer to pick up. When I analyze a, a session, I have to look to see if those basic elements are there. Mm-hmm. And if those basic elements are there, then I'm happy. But that means I have to clear my desk, knock things off my computer screen, uh, calm my mind, make sure I'm okay, settled. So the analyst is just as important as the viewer. Garbage in, garbage out. The analyst creates the the target. 
So the whole idea of the insistence back in the early days of remote viewing that it had to be a computer or it had to be some type of randomized device that was doing, that was not the time to get all uppity about the method to do it. They didn't understand what created the target in the first place. That was the time to chill out, calm down, let everybody experiment, even though it didn't seem like the way they were doing it was the one way other people wanted to do it. None of them understood what created the target in the first place. That was the time to let everyone just sort of float and experiment and be patient. That was about 30 years ago. That was about 30 years ago. Today, to my knowledge, there are, um, I would say, dozens of teachers and organizations. There are probably several thousand uh, practitioners of remote viewing, and, and they keep experimenting with new protocols. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, very few have accepted our theory for why this thing works. Mm -hmm. Very, There's zillions of people out there still doing associative remote viewing yeah. just exactly the way. It, and I've tried to explain to people who have come to me, that's not the best way to go it, to go about it, and I tried to explain it. And then they just turn around and say, well, we're going to do it anyway. And they, yeah. So we had not been very successful at persuading other people that our theoretical approach to understanding the actual phenomenon itself is correct. We have not been very successful, but we have been successful with our own remote viewing, and we have been successful in doing our stuff, but other people really haven't uh, adopted what we do. We're having more success in showing people how to take videos of unidentified flying objects, yeah. but then we are in, in convincing people to do experimental designs the way we do it. But that's okay. And the, the debate that happened between um, Bob John and, and Brenda Doon and uh, uh, Jessica. Jessica and uh, her other colleagues, that sort of separated them out into two different communities, the Parapsychological Association and the Society for Scientific, the Society for Scientific Exploration. That was actually a great thing because it opened, it was like clearing all the battle, it was like clearing the football field of all the players and allowing me and Farsight to come in later and say, well, no one's attacking us, so let's figure, let's spend some years to figure out. We probably spent five or six very, very frustrating years trying to figure out the answer to that problem. That's why the book, my book came out, that, that book, Remote Viewing this, and the, the Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception, that was a really hard book to write because I was trying to figure out what was causing, and I was so frustrated. We were trying to learn how to bet on the on lotteries as, as parts of the experimental design. It was so incredibly complicated, we couldn't figure out what was causing things, and it took me like five or six years of really a lot of frustration to finally, for finally to gel. And, but I was assisted by the fact that nobody was attacking us, and, or even looking at what we were doing, so I had peace and quiet in order to sort this out, and eventually the book came out as a result of that. Had I had I been in the situation that Jessica Utz and Bob John were in, they had organizations behind them that had a public presence, and they were sort of expected to perform and to, you know, show people that they're in charge, that they know how to do things. 
And at the time that I used to figure out what the problem was, I, I had an organization, but there was no real pressure to perform. I, we, I could spend quiet time just sort of figuring it out. And so I was really appreciative of the early dispute between the PA and the SSE groups because it sort of cleared the deck and allowed me just sort of to figure out my own way. Well, let's talk about what the Farsight Institute is doing these days with remote viewing. Well, once we figured out the targeting issue, what causes a target to be a target, then that freed us up to do all types of stuff. Then we realized that we could have verifiable components and then go into the non-verifiable parts because we always had something to pin it back on, the same being verifiable. It also opened up a whole idea about financial forecasts, which we were interested in. So what we basically did is start out, and also we had the uh, strong connection with the extraterrestrial element. We had extraterrestrial involvement with the, 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 the development of Farsight on a... Which we talked about in uh, a previous interview, yeah, we talked in our first that. interview. Yeah, and so we had a very strong interest in the extraterrestrial, in the extraterrestrial element and we were also gaining from that extraterrestrial element we were gaining new insights into the remote viewing process uh, specifically we were being given new procedures mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was hard to ignore the extraterrestrial element when in fact that element was giving us new stuff to work on mm -hmm. so we started to develop a whole series of of projects, we call them celestial projects, or and more commonly we just call them our mysteries projects, where we started to investigate history of humanity, going all the way back to the destruction of the dinosaurs to see what was going on and what was really happening. What really happened with Noah's Ark? What really happened with Ra? What really happened with uh, Zeus and so on? And, you know, no one can kill an Isby, so Zeus and Ra still exist. Now, we better, for viewers who have not uh, heard our previous interview, uh, define Isby. Oh, yes, an Isby. We are all Isbys. We don't use the word soul or spirit because of all the religious baggage. And Isby is a person who exists, who is, simply for the purpose of being. And we have discovered through our research that it is absolutely impossible. And I, I, I guarantee you this is correct. I, I don't care what anyone says. It is impossible to kill an Isby. No one can grant you eternal life because they can't take it away from you in the first place. It is impossible to die. An Isby never dies. But you can capture an Isby, you can enslave an Isby, you can trick an Isby, you can lie to an Isby, you can all types of bad you can do all types of bad things to an Isby, but you cannot kill an Isby. No one in the universe has ever figured out how to do that. So uh what we have what we found out is that people like Ra, the sun god, and Zeus, the Greek, you know, <laughs> they were actually real people. They were Isbys, just like everybody else. But they had powers that were technological. They had ships. They didn't, Zeus didn't have a chariot. He had a spaceship. Uh, similarly, Ra had his own tricks, but they were just ETs. And some of them were really messed up. And, and we, we investigated them and found out what their story was. With uh, the destruction of the dinosaurs, for example, that was really an interesting project. Now, this is how the verifiable component was. The viewers had to, had to describe the dinosaurs. 
totally blind. They were not expecting anything like that. I've actually shown you what the viewers are given. They're given a picture, a screenshot of a chart that says what their assignments are for the for the month. Yeah. And it just says, you know, it says deep news, history news, I mean, ET news or a mysteries target, whatever. But it doesn't say anything about the targets. It just says mm -hmm. they have five sessions that are due and they have to get them done or they don't get paid. So under totally blind conditions, the viewers had to describe a primitive planet that's jungle all over the place and had huge reptiles crawling all over the place. That's verifiable. We know that the dinosaurs existed and they know they were large reptiles mm -hmm. and it was a jungle type planet. Yeah. So that's verifiable. Then we had to investigate the time of the destruction. And then we had, and they had to describe these big rocks coming down all by themselves. And then they had to go back and follow where the big rocks were coming from. And it so turns out that on Earth, at the time of the dinosaurs, there were also sentient humanoid-type reptiles, reptilians. Mm -hmm. And they stood upright. They had arms and legs and things like that. And they had technological stuff. They had spaceships and stuff. Mm -hmm. But there was no industrial base. It was a jungle planet. So they came from somewhere else. But they were living here, and they seemed happy. They were the first sentient people on Earth. And they were attacked by humanoids, mammals, that looked like us in spaceships, who did a very common method of attacking, even to this day. They dragged in these, these big rocks, like these asteroids. They dragged them in, and they bombarded the whole planet with these rocks that basically created a nuclear winter and destroyed. And in addition, they had ships around the planet, and when the sentient reptiles tried to escape, they shot them out of the sky. So it was not just rocks destroying the planet and people died because of the nuclear winter. Mm. The, the humanoid-type sentient reptilians, they tried to get to the ships to get out of the Holocaust and to leave, and they were shot one at a time. Till they were trying to... It was essentially a genocide. Mm -hmm. And the, the mammal humanoid types were trying to wipe out the reptilians on this planet. Now, you can then ask why. Uh, there has been disputes, fights, wars between the reptilians and the mammal humanoid types going back to way back when. The two sides have not been happy campers. And this was part of a long history of war between those two groups. And that's what ended the dinosaurs. So, you know, the, we, re, we rediscovered what actually happened. What about mainstream scientists? They got part of it right. Rocks came in, hit the planet, caused a nuclear winter, killed off most of the, uh, the, of the animal life, the dinosaurs died, but they missed a whole lot as well. But you see how we have the verifiable part? Yep. And that part allowed us to add the rest. To, in effect, give you confidence. And given us confidence in, in with regard rest. to that. Well, it's an interesting scenario. Uh, I know that there are science fiction stories based on it. I'm pretty sure there was a Star Trek episode in, in which the humanoid-like reptilians are, are still out there in outer space with uh, starships that go faster than even Captain Picard's. Yeah. Yeah, actually, reptilians are a thing. They are a big extraterrestrial group. We know a lot about them. And a lot of the projects that we have done in involve those reptilians. One of our first exposures, direct exposures to the reptilians, was 
Area 51. Mm-hmm. We, were in, we knew that Area 51 existed. That's the verifiable part. So we did a project on Area 51. It's got some short buildings on the surface, and, but nothing, nothing of really great significance in a desert. Everything in Area 51 is below. Now, it was President Obama that finally acknowledged that Area 51 exists. He was the first president to ever say, yes, it's a real thing. But Area 51 as a secret base, which President Obama finally acknowledged, is below. And so we went down there. Now, what's below has been talked about extensively by people like Bob Lazar and so on. But as you go down the levels, though the the remote viewers in terms of the verifiable stuff had to verify what we can see on Google Earth. They had to verify Groom Lake. They had to verify the buildings. They had to verify what's on the surface. And then they went down the elevators. And so there are elevators. We know that. We know there's many levels below. That's not secret. And as you go down, you get um, levels, really big levels, where they're working on advanced avionics of advanced technology. And then as you go down, you see a lot of humans working on uh, ET ships that are being reverse engineered. That's exactly what David Grush and the disclosure stuff that's been coming out of congressional hearings over this summer has been talking about. Summer of 2023 was big with regard to uh, disclosures coming. I don't think he was so specific, though, as to talk about levels and elevators. No, but he was specific enough to talk about reverse engineering stuff. And his other... As did Bob Lazar. As Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As did Bob Lazar. And so as you go further down those elevators, as you go down, 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 you get... Deeper levels where more exotic things happen. As you go farther down, all the way down, you get to the reptilian parts. So this is really not in dispute among people who know anything. Uh, Haim Ashed, former head of the Israeli Space Directorate for 30 years, that's their version of NASA, has said publicly that there are written agreements between the United States government and the extraterrestrials to allow them to operate here on Earth in these underground places. Under Area 51, as you go deep enough, the reptilians are one of those groups that have those written agreements between the United States government and themselves. But now, Chaim Eshed didn't go so specific as to say, there they are in level 12 at no. Area 51. No, he just said, he just said that there are written agreements yeah. with the United States government and the reptil- and and extraterrestrials. He didn't say reptilian to have these bases and to do operations, yeah. a- experiments, and activities yeah. here on Earth. But we were sent our remote viewers down there, so they got all the verifiable stuff correct. Yeah. And as they went down deeper and deeper, deeper, they finally got to the reptilian levels. And then when they got to the reptilian levels, it was very interesting because it was cat and mouse because the reptilians saw them coming. Extraterrestrials can see the remote viewers; they actually see them. And, for example, my son, Aziz, when he went down there, he got face-to-face with this big reptilian dude down there. He was really deep. And at the very bottom levels, it's like a whole society down there. And he got down there, and there was this reptilian dude sort of standing in the way. Now, he didn't know anything about the target, nothing. But he described Groom Lake. He described the whole thing on the surface. He described the elevators. He went down all the different levels. And finally, he found a reptilian down there. So there was a lot of verifiable stuff that he got before he got to the reptilian and that reptilian knew him, knew he was coming, knew the whole thing, and said, you're not getting any farther. And Aziz, he, looked, he took it as a game. Oh, yeah? So he 
as a remote viewer, you can shift your location. He, so he was shifting and shifting and shifting, and the reptilian was also moving around quickly to continue blocking. Now, he could have actually passed. Uh, we have anti-blocking methods where he could have gone, but he got enough. He had been in the session for like two or three hours, and it was enough to know that there were reptilians down there and that they didn't want him to go down there. He didn't know if that was enough, so he just ended the session. And in fact, that was enough for us for that particular project. Now, let me ask you this question. We talked about the idea that in the, the many worlds theory, anything you can imagine is is going to exist in one of these worlds. And we also know that we live in, in a world, uh, the world, this world, what we call our physical world, is full of what is known as disinformation and misinformation. And, and that there are people who uh, concoct uh, s stories that they know to be false for various reasons to serve different agendas. Exactly right. So when you're doing remote viewing, wouldn't it be just as likely that you'd come upon some uh, disinformation story and, and it would uh, appear in some other reality just as real and as solid as this? That's a very real problem. And let me tell you what we do about it. Yeah. I'm not saying it's foolproof, but this is what we do about it. Mm -hmm. As I talked about my own personal background and Farsight's background with mm -hmm. the extraterrestrials, we call the extraterrestrials that we work with the good guys. Mm -hmm. It is possible for the advanced extraterrestrials on either side to block remote viewers. They just can't get past them by themselves. So we have to be able to unravel all of these problems, including a lot of these history problems where, where history isn't what it was reported, when those beings that you're remote viewing can see you and actually block you and stop you. Yeah. So we have an agreement with our side of the extraterrestrials. Our side of the extraterrestrials have a means, technological, whatever, to get past all the blocking. They, these people have been around for millions of years. They have a way to get past the blocking. It's, it's, I'm certain it's like technological enhancements, but also other things. And so what we do when we're being blocked is we use our anti-blocking procedures. And what those are, it's nothing fancy, is we go through the minds of somebody on our side who's designated for that, an extraterrestrial, who gets who knows how to get through it and we ride that consciousness signal as a carrier wave mm -hmm. to the target wherever it was be mm -hmm. the bad ets or the ets that are on the other side know that about us completely they know when farsight is coming they they know our name they know our viewers and they they know they cannot stop us under any circumstances they cannot stop us because we're superhuman <laughs> They can't stop us because they know we're riding in the, the carrier wave signal of these other groups. And we get through them no matter what. The interesting person, all of our remote viewers are sort of used to this now. Uh, my son sort of thinks of it as a game because he knows they, they can't stop him. In the beginning, they did, and that was sort of a problem, and that's why we came up with this agreement. Ingo Swan talks about uh, remote viewing the moon and being uh, basically booted out by some that extraterrestrial can group. Yeah, he did that in uh, in his book. Uh, Penetration. Penetration, yeah. Yeah, and that's a real thing. So in order for us to get to these targets, so to get past the disinformation, yeah. 
because we have been, the, the disinformation is terrible when you actually think about someone being able to block you and control what you're perceiving. Yeah. To do that, we ride the carrier wave, we get into the other things, in, into the, what we consider to be the real stuff. Then we see if that actually matches with what we know on the ground as being, as what we're, as what's actually happening. The, um, the, in, some of the, my son sort of thinks of it as a game when he goes in. He's th- when it happens, he, he realizes what's happening. They can't block him. Sort of fun. But the person that's most interesting to watch is Yeme Jeanne. <laughs> she is so interesting. Because she was originally uh, legally blind. Yeah, she's one of five viewers that you're working. Yes, with she's one days. of five viewers. She's probably, she's arguably, perhaps the best tele. She's certainly the best telepath I've ever met. Maybe the best on the planet, but she's really good. And she was legally blind. She's not anymore. We actually paid for her to have her eyes operated on. Now she sees better than all of us. Mm-hmm. But for most of her life, she was legally blind. And uh, she couldn't read even huge writing unless it was three inches from her face. And so, and she was a model. Mm. So she could, she's absolutely physically gorgeous. And she was a model on a podium surrounded by guys who were just dropping dead and looking at her, you know, and drawing her and sketching her and uh, photographing and so on. And she had to have a way to defend herself. So she developed her mental abilities as a means of survival. Yeah. I mean, she could see enough to even drive with these huge glasses, real thick glasses, museum-type pieces. Anyway, but now, even though now she can see really great because of the operation that was done, uh, she, she's really, she's, can, she's kept all that telepathic capability. Mm-hmm. And when she goes in and she sees beings that would like to block her, she just laughs. It's like, she goes in and she says, and she's really haughty about it. Now, she doesn't know anything about the target. And she's doing everything blind. And she's on video totally solo. And right in the middle of the solo session, she'll say something like, are you going to tell me what I want to know and do it voluntarily? Or am I going to take it from you anyway? You know you can't stop. <laughs> you know you can't stop. To see her actually with that level of confidence, that's the level of confidence that we see in the extraterrestrials out there even a high end of the level of confidence, and to see a human being, a normal human being, to have grasp of all of these sort of psychic senses to the point where they're so confident they can go head-to-head with a reptilian, head-to-head with a reptilian, who have, we believe the reptilians have, actually we've done sessions on this, they have technological enhancements in themselves to give them this sort of extra psychic capability. She'll go right head-to-head with them, Knowing nothing can happen to them, and they're they're scared. They they do not like it. Actually, they have a tremendous amount of respect for her, but at the same time, they're nervous around her. And we have had situations where we sent her to a target. Somebody always meets her. Some reptilian always meets her and says he's going to stop her. He realizes eventually he can't. She's blasting through everything. And we've had situations where the reptilian actually said, "We really don't want you to go through that wall." Let me explain. If you went through that wall, you'll see something that you don't like. It will be really bad. We admit it. And we don't, we respect you. We don't want you to see it because it would hurt you. It would be, it would be traumatic for you to do it. So we're just asking you kindly, would you please not go through that wall? And we're admitting to you that you'll see something that is really awful if you go through that wall. And she has at that point said, well, now that you're being honest with me, okay. I'll back off. By that time, it's a three-hour session. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's tired anyway, and she's backed off on those things. 
But to see that level of confidence is so great because that's what every human being should have. That's what you should be. You shouldn't be scared of an extraterrestrial. You should be confident. You should be looking at it just like you look at this cup and say, this is a cup. I'm not scared of this cup. You're not scared of a person. That's that level of confidence. So when I see someone like Yeme go into a session and she'll see the most horrible things, she'll just look at it. One of the interesting things to uh, see with one of her sessions, this was before her eyes were fixed, is her session on Jack the Ripper. Mm. And you can see these all, all of these things are on farsightprime.com. But to see her on Jack the, to see her doing Jack the Ripper, you see the level of depth that she gets. She didn't know the target. She was just told there was a target, target six or something, you know, as in, she goes in and describes Jack the Ripper doing it. She saw it. She saw the guy panically hacking away at this woman. She was describing the woman. She was getting, she was, she was crying. Tears were coming down. And she said, this is terrible. And she was describing Jack the Ripper as if she was literally right there. And she was in Jack the Ripper's head. And she was in the woman's head. And she was describing. And then she finally, he went tears streaming down her head. She just walked off the camera, off the frame. And she was not told anything about the target. She told everything. Any of the viewers that you're in your audience, if you want to see that level of penetration that a viewer can have, take a look at Princess Yenay. Actually, she was called Princess Jenay in that time. Uh, she changed her name to Yeme Jenay. But take a look at the Jack the Ripper session that you can find on farsightprime.com and you'll say, wow. And imagine that type of capability going head to head with uh, an extraterrestrial trying to, trying to block. And then the extraterrestrial realizes, they can't block, but it's not we're super. We're not superhuman. We're getting help. Now you then can then say, how do you know that's not misinformation and disinformation? Okay, we're getting help as a carrier wave. You have to trust that the carrier wave isn't distorting the reality that we're actually seeing. But on the other side, we're seeing so much lies and disinformation. It's just right off the scale that. We have a long-term trust relationship with our side of the extraterrestrials. They seem to be totally dedicated to the idea of ripping all of the lies and the disinformation away. So we'd much rather go with their carrier wave than to just trust the, the bull that we see coming from everybody else. Well, I tend to think of remote viewing, I often use the comparison to baseball. Yeah. Babe Ruth, one of the uh -huh. greatest baseball players of all time, mm -hmm like many great sluggers, had, had home run records, but he struck out more often than he hit a home run. And I wonder, uh, what what do you say about the percentages uh, that exist uh, with a good remote viewer? You know, Babe Ruth is a real good example. Uh, perhaps if I can modify it a little bit, it's for those historians that are baseball fans, it's Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. I remember those days. <laughs> <laughs> On the Yankees. And Roger Maris always went for the home run. He was interested in cracking Babe Ruth's record. <laughs> and so he always went for the home run. Mickey Mantle liked home runs as well. He was also trying to crack the record, but he went for the, whatever hit he could get. And so the audience, the New York audience, used to really cheer for Mickey Mantle because they considered considered him a team player mm -hmm. that was just trying to help the team. And if, if his hit could get the, the person on first over to person on second for the purpose of the team, that was good. Roger Maris got up 
to bat and people booed him. Same team. But they said he's playing for himself, whereas Mickey Mantle was playing for his team. But they were both trying to break Babe Ruth's record. So, um, and they both had occasional strikeouts. And they both had a, Roger Maris probably had more strikeouts than, than Mickey Mantle. I don't know the exact numbers, but yeah. I'm assuming Robert Roger, Roger Maris had more strikeouts because he was always going for just the home run, whereas Babe Ruth was taking whatever he got. Anyway, um, in terms of our accuracy rate, there are two ways you can approach this. You can say, give me a table and give me a percentage. There is no shortage of scientific papers out there that gives percentage accuracy for the proof of psi functioning type mm -hmm. of stuff. It hasn't made a dent in mainstream science. So they don't care about what p-value you have, your probability value for getting your results. They just, you know, whatever the accuracy rate is, they don't take it seriously. So we, we in my book, Remote Viewing the Science and Theory of, of Non-Physical Perception, I did take that seriously. I did report accuracy rates. In the, ac in the article that came out in the uh, Journal for Scientific Exploration, I did go into the accuracy rates, tables, numbers, probabilities, things like that. For our stuff that we have on farsightprime.com, I let everybody evaluate it on, the moment, on their own. The sessions are up. They're done, they're done totally blind. They're, the video recordings of the session, which is the last part of them, the viewers doing the session, are done alone in the, in the studio. No one's in the room but yeah. them. And, but this, the single remote viewer. And the people can then see, are they describing the verifiable components correctly? And then we don't publish a, pub, a, a thing without if things are not done and if it's not accurate mm -hmm. so we have a really high accuracy rate with regard to uh the the, the so-called the mysteries projects or other projects because we get the verifiable stuff correct basically all the time or it's not even published but you know the 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 issue of accuracy can i add just one thing about this carl sagan mm -hmm. carl sagan was a famous astronomer in cornell he was really more of a astronomy popularizer than he was an actual astronomer. In one sense, he was just a fraud. And let me explain. Give me a chance, because he's so, he's so revered out there. He was the guy that came up with the thought and made it into a, essentially a long mantra. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. That was religion. That had nothing to do with science. And he got the entire Psychops group, the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, and a whole body of scientists to sort of repeat that. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's not scientific. It's bogus. It's junk. All of science is based on probability values, and they have essentially a rule. It's called the alpha level of the test. If the probabilities of a result is sufficiently small, if it is smaller than the alpha level of the test, then it's accepted. Now, even in controversial topics, such as whether mercury-laden vaccines caused autism, CDC used the alpha level of 0.05 to, to, to argue that the, the vaccines that had thimerosal mercury in them did not cause autism. So even with that very sensitive topic, the 0.05 probability level, 
as the alpha level of the test was satisfactory. It's yeah. sort of a standard. It's science. a standard. And when it comes to psi functioning, Carl Sagan comes in and says, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. It's like the bully at the beach saying, don't cross this land on this line in the sand or your, your face is mud. And then you step over it. Of course, the psi data, if you look at 150 years of parapsychological data, the p-values are closer to one in a billion. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And Jessica Utz, mm -hmm. she's a statistician. Yes. She has re talked about this accurately many times. The, 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 al the, the, uh, the alpha level of 0.05 has been surpassed many, many, many times yeah. to many, many, many levels of decimals. Yeah. And Carl Sagan saying... Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. What he's doing is he's moving the alpha level of the test arbitrarily right. and eventually saying, I don't care what kind of evidence you show me, I'm not going to believe it. Yeah. Jeff, that's not science. And he got a whole bunch of scientists to, to start chanting that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And these are regular professors and they're, they're, they're chanting this mantra. And it's stupid. It's not science. It's a belief system. And the, the, the whole idea of changing the alpha level of the test is you can't do that after the experiment's designed, after the experiment's done. If the alpha level of the test is 0.05 and you surpass that, the experiment's over. And then when you have an alpha level of 0.05 and the experimental result is 0.00000000001, way smaller than the alpha level, it's done. It's over. Yet they refuse to even accept that the psi functioning even exists, no matter what the alpha level well, is. Of course, we're all human beings, and uh, we know a great deal about the sociology of science. Yeah. Uh, Max Planck, the founder of quantum physics, said that uh, essentially science progresses one funeral at a time. One of the problems, I think, these days that exists in science in general is that, uh, particularly the social and even biological sciences, mm -hmm. is that uh, researchers are losing confidence in normal statistics and, and probabilities. And in any case, I recently saw a brand new study. They took the same set of statistics in a biology experiment, I think they gave it to over 200 different biologists to analyze the data, and they came up using the very same statistical set with different interpretations. That's the big problem that we're dealing with with mainstream science, with the entire psi phenomenon, with the entire issue of extraterrestrials, the entire issue of remote viewing is that people look at the results and come up with their own interpretations or simply dismiss the interpretations or dismiss the data themselves entirely. And the, the problem is that you don't, or not you, but they don't understand that people are people. Humans, scientists are humans before they are science, scientists. And they come into the entire field of science with their own predispositions. That was the big problem with uh, quantum mechanics in the beginning, because when they saw that the things on the quantum level didn't actually occur or manifest until they observed in some way, they were not able to originally envision the idea of there being multiple realities. So they forced their own interpretation of there being only one reality, the one that we see, and that caused them to have the collapse of the wave function sort of interpretation. But 
there are even bigger examples. I, I don't use this in, and remember I teach statistics at yeah. the university, so I don't use this example as much as I used to because my students basically were born after the year 2000. But it wasn't until 1995 that there was a fundamental change in the astronomy field. Until 1995, astronomers argued almost universally and hugely forcefully that there were no other planets around any other stars, period. They argued, and this is, you have to have looked at the time, at the time period and read the news articles and so on. They said that it was so unusual for a planet to form out of the primordial dust that it's just extraordinary. So the idea of there being planets elsewhere in the galaxy, just planets elsewhere in the galaxy, was extremely rare, and they extended that to the whole universe, that it's extremely rare for there to be planets. So they were willing to accept stars, but not planets. That changed in 1995, 1995 when the, an astronomer discovered evidence of the first planet around a star. And now, of course, you're, they're discovering multiple planets a week. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much every star has planets. But they're ubiquitous everywhere. Now, go back to 1995. What were the scientists actually doing when they said there are no, there are no planets around in every star? They were basing everything on their belief system, on their religions and belief systems, because from a, from a scientific perspective, the only thing they could have, could have predicted is the mean. So what you have is two means of statistics, and statistics are used for all of science. You have descriptive statistics and you have inferential statistics. Descriptive statistics are used when you have one variable at a time. And the best you can do is look at the mean and the distribution around the mean. And so the mean is the only thing you can predict. With inferential statistics, you have other inf information about other variables. And so then you can say, well, based on what I know about this variable, can I say something about that variable? That's inferential statistics. But until 1995, they only had descriptive statistics about planets around stars. So the only thing they could have scientifically predicted is the mean. And they had a sample of one, one star system, it had nine major planets, an asteroid belt, comets, meteors, junk galore, everything's out there. And they were saying there were no planets around any other star, not just in the galaxy, but in the universe. It was crazy. They were totally non-scientific. It was just their belief system that was going. So that, that phenomenon we see repeated over and over and over and over again. And that's a basic phenomenon that you see a lot of scientists with regard to, do UFOs exist? If they don't want to believe that they exist, they just rule them out and say they can't exist. Do aliens exist? No. But we're in the same situation now that we were with regard to planets in 1995. They have a sample of one. One planet. And around this planet, there are billions of different types of life forms, perhaps billions upon billions. There's so many life forms. The only thing that they can scientifically predict 
is the mean, which must mean that there is life, that's, that life is very easy to form, and it's ubiquitous throughout the galaxy. And it has been ubiquitous for billions of years, thus there must be very advanced civilizations essentially everywhere. That almost every possible, every, every star system that has planets that has, that could be hosp, that could be hospitable to life must have life on it. That's the only thing that they can predict until they have more information, and that would be for inferential statistics. So, those scientists who say we're alone in the universe, they're just nuts. They're not being scientific. They, they the only thing they can predict is to mean. What really disturbs me, is when I see the disclosure stuff coming out, like in the summer of 2000, of 2023, and David Grush is being part of the disclosure phenomena that's happening with congressional hearings and so on, plus some other whistleblowers. Now, in case our viewers don't know who David Grush is, maybe you could explain. He's someone that works in the Pentagon as a link between Pentagon and uh, Congress, and his job at the Pentagon, with a security clearance, was to interview zillions of people to find out what the government does know about the UFOs. And he has found that there's a very large craft retrieval program, that there are what they call non-human biologics, <laughs> aliens. And when he's being interviewed by media people, it always boils down to the same thing. So are you telling me that we are not alone in the universe? I mean, how stupid can you get? That's the basic problem that they had back in the old days of 1995 with are we the only planet in the universe? Of course we're not alone in the universe. The fact that there's so much life, everywhere there's life. You walk outside, there's bugs, there's bacteria, there's viruses. And I'm assuming here a virus can be considered life, although that's debatable. But the basic idea is there's so many life forms, uh, humans, bears, everything, that it's impossible to predict without other information, anything but the means. So, we, of course, we're not alone in the universe. Even sentient life forms, people that have the ability to think advanced thoughts, they have to be common in the universe because they exist in huge numbers here on this planet. So, it's the boiling it all down to, does that mean we're not alone in the universe? That prevents people from going to the next question, which is, not do aliens exist, not do the UFOs exist, but the most important question that they could ask, which is really, really, really important, which is, what are the ETs doing? What are the aliens doing? No one's asking what they're doing. They're all asking, are we alone in the universe? And then David Grush, for example, one of the whistleblowers, he, asks, he brings up all this inter interesting information about the craft retrieval program, the non-biologics, everything. Not a single interviewer that I have seen has gone beyond, does this mean we're not alone in the universe? Not a single one, even in the congressional hearings, it says, well, what are these folks doing? Well, in fact, quite a few news articles are attacking the sanity. <laughs> yeah, in fact, well, that's, that's quite common. I knew that would happen. Everyone knew that would happen. He, he was a veteran from uh, Afghanistan war and so on, and uh, many veterans had come back from wars have PTSD, and then they have some alcohol problems afterwards dealing. I mean, they have their best friends dying in front of them, and it's an issue. Uh, he recovered from that, as many veterans recover from that, and he has his security clearance. He still has his security clearance. However, the people who are attacking him with regard to, but he's unbelievable because of that, that's crazy also, because 
David Rush is not the issue. The issue has never been David Rush. He's just a person who's been talking to the people that have the direct evidence. It's those people who are the issue. So for them to try to discredit David Rush is like crazy. It's just obviously a disinformation type of campaign that's going on. And no one's asking questions about the reporter or the reporters that are, you know, trying, saying bad things about David Rush. No one's asking about their mental history. No one's asking about their, their connections with the intelligence community that might want to lead things in the direction of discrediting David Rush. For example, one of the reporters that brought up the issue of David, of David Rush's mental health history with regard to his PTSD, uh, alcoholism, things like that. This is quite a few years ago uh, that that happened. But nonetheless, when the reporter brought it up, the reporter self-acknowledged that he didn't believe anything David Rush was saying. That's a bias to begin with. And secondly, that he had contacts in the intelligence community. I know from the work that I do that the intelligence community has people in every single major news organization point blank. They got somebody everywhere. They've got scientists in universities. They have connections. Now, it's not meaning that those are spies, and it's not meaning that those are paid employees, but they're people that have some connection to the intelligence community, and those people have to do what the intelligence community people want or else. In terms of some scientists, they won't get grants for astronomer, astronomy type things or physics things or whatever. In terms of other types of people, they won't, they can be cut off so they don't have access to the intelligence community information. So if the intelligence community wants them to do something, they can give them hints, such as look and do freedom of information act type of stuff to investigate this, that, and the other with regard to David Rush or somebody else and telling them where this stuff would be. And so that it looks like the reporter's doing it all independently, but in fact, they have connections, they're being told where to go, and they go and they do it. So no one's, no one's asking about that being a corrupting factor in the reporting. And no one, so no one's asking about the reporters. So this is all part of the information, disinformation type of problem that we're dealing with. And the media doesn't seem to be capable of sorting that out very well. They just sort of leave it with, the disinformation being the sort of the, the bottom line. But what you're telling me, and the gist of our interview for the last hour and a half, is that through the remote viewing methods that you've developed with some help from the good ETs, it enables you to make that distinction between authentic information and disinformation. We have learned not to trust what anybody says. We don't trust any historical results that are reported in history books or reported in the news. and We just don't trust anything. So when we want to find out what's going on, if something's important, we design a project, we assign it blind to very highly trained remote viewers, and they do their work without communicating to each, with each other, and then we look. And there's a tremendous amount of... Um, reinforcement that we get with the believing of our results because we have independent remote viewers who are doing their work without any communication among each other coming up with the same stuff. Mm -hmm. That's very persuasive yeah. when you're thinking about them working blind to a, com to a completely 
new target that they've never had before that's very different from any other target that they've had just even discussions about and they all come up with the same type of thing like i was mentioning the area 51 thing they had never been most of our remote viewers had never been the targeted had never we had never assigned them area 51 they all described the same desert and the same buildings and the same elevators and they all went down the elevators and they saw the same things that type of corroboration even though you can say what's deep in area 51 and in the levels down below is unverifiable because we don't know what's down there. The very fact that we had a whole bunch of remote viewers come back with the exact same thing, that's pretty close to what we might call verification. The other thing is that even if something is not immediately verifiable, that doesn't mean you discard the results. That means it's not yet verifiable. The time will come when everything is eventually verifiable. And the fact that we have the, the, the stuff on record so that people can watch it on our streaming service, farsightprime.com, that's a tremendous capability for individuals around the world to, to look at that library and then... A hundred years from now, people can still check your results. And it will matter a hundred years from now because people then say they tried to control people back in the old days with, by controlling what they know. But the true information was available through these methods. That means a hundred years from now, people will say, if we're clever, we can come up with the truth using our, using whatever methods they decide at that point. Meaning they'll not be limited by the, the lies that people do. Now remember, you cannot kill an isbi. An isbi is someone who is for the purpose of being. We don't use the word soul or spirit. We use isbi. But you can lie to an isbi. You can trick an isbi. You can enslave an isbi. You can, all, you can do all manner of bad things to an ISBI. You just can't kill it. So that's why being able to discern the truth is so important. Mm -hmm. Just because somebody can't kill you doesn't mean that they can't do things that you don't want to have happen. So being able to discern the truth is the most important thing that any person can do, whether they're in a physical body or not. Well, I agree with you there. And I think it also helpful to have an appreciation for human error and, and human folly. Uh, one final point. There was an experiment done many years ago by Gertrude Schmeidler, a well-known parapsychologist, now deceased, the City College of New York. She studied a, a group, in fact, it involved a, a late remote viewer who was a good friend of mine and a talented remote viewer, Alan Vaughn. Uh, okay. Alan Vaughn had a class, and uh, she uh, tested the class. She tested Alan with the class on different targets. And what she found, was, I thought was interesting, is that the students in that class picked up on whatever Alan was reporting, whether or not he was correct. Uh, if he was correct, they followed him. If he was incorrect, they followed him. So I would think one of the possibilities in, in your group, if let's say Yamei Janae is considered the best remote viewer ever, as you described, people, maybe the other people are picking up on her, whether or not she's uh, correct in any instance. Actually, I didn't say she's the best remote viewer. She's just an extraordinary telepath. Yeah. Her mental abilities to communicate are, are extraordinary. 
the other remote viewers are equally extraordinary and they all have their own benefits. Intisam, for example, and Aziz are really great with physical descriptions, uh, whereas Yeme Jene, who was blind, uh, or, or legally blind for most of her life, she's not the best with physical descriptions. Mm. So everybody has their own talents and so on like that. Um, but what you're asking is a more general and important question, which is can something lead a remote viewing group into a, a false conclusion? So can, it, can, can something make them deviate and come up with something bad? So we've been aware of that for a long time. A couple of things. We found out that the, some elements within the intelligence community, when they wanted to corrupt a project that we were doing, that especially one that had a public audience, they would use the same target coordinates that we use, the eight numbers. Those are eight numbers that view, remote viewers have to write down to start their sessions for other projects that they would give their remote viewers so you'd have a bunch of intelligence community remote viewers using the same numbers for one target. And our remote viewers got used to the idea of going out in a flock, mm -hmm. like a flock of birds to a thing. And that number was going towards something. And they saw essentially the flock or a flock going of remote viewers going to a different target. And it was a way to actually lead the remote viewers off target mm -hmm. to something else. And the intelligence community became good at being able to distort what what the actual target was. So what we did to counteract that is we, since we knew that the, the analyst thoughts are the things that are the most important for creating the target, we let the remote viewers pick their own target. I mean, their own their own target coordinates. We stopped using the numbers. We stopped using one set of numbers for each target. So before our remote viewers do a session, they go to our website and they use a random number generator that's designed for coming up with these target coordinates, and they just press it a few times and write a number down. So everybody has different numbers, so there isn't that type of link mm -hmm. that we can do. So and, and all other remote viewers also know that they have their own special talents. So we look for each one of those in each one of those sessions for the stuff that they're particularly good at. Aziz is really good at following the rabbit trail and getting all types of detail as you go down. Intisam is really good at physical descriptions of, of sort of complex physical descriptions. Uh, Kamaya is really good at evaluating sort of the impact of what's going on. She's, she's really good at sort of seeing what's going on and then sort of interpreting this in terms of real terms. And then uh, Shantae is really good in terms of basic descriptions of the physical sight. She's really great with that type of stuff. So everybody has their own strengths. So we don't have one viewer dominating and leading all the others because each one has their own strength and we look for that strength in their session. Mm -hmm. So if we want good physical descriptions of sort of the basic target elements of what something looks like, we often look at what Shantae's got. When we... When we want sort of more detailed descriptions of physical elements and things like that uh, in terms of sketches and stuff, we often look at what Intisam does. When we want to look at the sort of that impact type of a thing, we, we wait to hear what, what Kamaya says. And when we want to look at sort of a, someone chasing the rabbit tail or chasing the, the rabbit, going down the rabbit hole and, and chasing what's going on deep, we also look at what Aziz does because he keeps penetrating, penetrating till he sort of sorts out. And to him, it's sort of a game. So, 
So it's not that one person can do that. The other thing, when we analyze our sessions, we know that the analyst's thoughts can screw up everything. Mm -hmm. The analyst's thoughts, if the analyst has a bias, then that bias will become the target. And so if I'm the analyst or if Aziz is the analyst or if someone's the analyst, we treat it like a remote viewing session. We calm ourselves. We do a little bit of calming down, meditation, calming down, clear the desk, clear the computer screen, re consciously remove any pre precon preconceptions, and then look at the data. Um, this is one of the instances that sort of nailed this for us. Back in the old days, there were there were two remote viewers, a male and a female. And one of the remote viewers is I considered really good, the male. And he got sessions that were very much like my sessions. And I thought of him as like almost as good as me. See that ego stuff coming? Mm -hmm. And the female, I thought, was lower than him, that she was not quite as good as he was. So the, we were doing a binary associative remote viewing experiment where if the target if the if the stock market was going up then it was going to be target a if it was going down to be target b and so on and i i did a session on i did a session for that as well and i looked at the results and it was target b okay then i looked at this guy's session and i said before i even opened it i said he's pretty good I bet his session will look like my session because I was assuming I was correct because I was the big dude. And I opened his pages, and sure enough, it was like a carbon copy of mine. And I said, okay, well, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not surprised by that. Then I put the woman's session next to me, and I said, she's pretty good too, so I bet this will, will look pretty good. Let's see. And I started to turn her papers, her pages, and it was really perfect description of the same target that I was describing. And then I said, hmm, this isn't right. She's not that good. This can't be. This can't continue. I turned the page, and the very next page was a perfect description of target A, the other target. And then it went on. Uh, you know, it, the, the rest of the session was a perfect description of the other target. Well, it turned out that after the stock markets went up or down, the correct target was target A. I got it wrong. The other guy got it wrong. The lady got it right. <laughs> So it was my thoughts, my predisposition that she wasn't as good a remote viewer that that, that became part of the target. Mm -hmm. I my initial thought that she was good enough to get the basics, that was part of the target. Then my then my thought that she's not that good that f essentially freed her to go to the other target and she did it. So when we analyze our remote viewing sessions, even when we work with students, we're very clear about not judging anything, not bringing that in, because the problem that you just mentioned is a very real problem, and people have to deal with it in instructional environments as best they can. But that was some of my of my experiences, and I learned right away that any type of bias that I could have, for whatever reason, maybe thinking a man could be better than a woman with regard to remote viewing, which is absolutely not true, uh, but if I ever thought that, that is part of the target when I'm looking at the sessions. So, yeah, it's possible, and we, ha we do the best we can in a complicated situation to control for that. Well, Courtney Brown, 
we began our discussion by you telling me that your uh, hero in all of this work was the great character in, in science fiction, Harry Seldon. Yeah, yeah. You have followed in, in those mythical footsteps, and I guess it will be up for, to our viewers to decide whether your work belongs in science fiction or whether it belongs in, in science. Uh, if I had to vote right now, I, I would say you're more in the science camp. Well, I appreciate it, and I'm willing to let people decide for themselves. I have only one really criteria that I work right now, and that is, am I having fun doing it? And I'm having fun, so I'm going to keep on doing it. <laughs> Courtney, thank you once again so much for being with me today and with our viewers. Actually, I've said this to you before, but it's really my honor to be here with you. I, I really respect your your interviewing style and your, your podcast. You, you're really top of the line with regard to things like this, and so it's really great for us to have this opportunity. Well, it, and it's an honor for me that you went to all the trouble to come. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you, because you are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.